You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the end of 2018. It's it. We finally reached the end of it. We did indeed. It's been a good year. It it, it's, it's been an exciting year for Common Descent. Busy, but so good. We started this year off with episode 26, Astrobiology. Wow. And the day before this episode, this, this bonus episode releases... We will have released episode 51 on Mosasaurs. That's, I, I I had forgotten that it was 26, that was 25 episodes almost ago at the yeah. beginning of the year. That's crazy. Uh, it's fantastic. And as many of you know, because we've hosted it all over the social medias, we have decided to wrap up the year with a Q&A. Back in May, we did our survey episode, and we ended up unexpectedly having a bunch of cues to A, <laughs> and we had a great time. It was like an hour and a half of us just answering people's questions. It was so much fun. So we decided to do it again. Woo! We're not going to do a whole lot of talking about plans for the future. Just know that as 2019 comes in, we do have a bunch of new things we're going to be t discussing and looking into and planning for the year. So keep an ear out for those. Uh, we have it's plans be a good to make plans. We have we have put it in the schedule to make plans. <laughs> and then we have it down here on the schedule. Be productive. All right. Do things. But before we get to the Q&A, one last thing I just want to say is huge thank you to all of our listeners mm -hmm. who have been with us throughout the year. It's The feedback we get is fantastic. Uh, comments on social media we get emails from people giving us feedback asking us questions it is wonderful huge thanks to our patrons as of this recording we have over 50 patrons yeah and that is incredible that the, the support that we get from our patrons is absolutely phenomenal we love it it allows us to do what we're doing it's really i i know this is a cliche for i, I i'm completely blown away and humbled by the fact that we've we've gotten this much support so early in our podcasting career it's yes. really amazing it's great so thank you all as always keep listening keep giving us your feedback spread the word tell your friends do liking and subscribing and and leave us reviews on iTunes actually are super helpful smash a button or something smash that subscribe button uh <laughs> Cronk that iTunes review. Drink that Kool-Aid. If you want to join us on Patreon, we're happy to have you. If you've already joined us on Patreon, thank you so much. And a big thanks to the several dozen people who responded to the Q&A. Yeah, we got a good turnout. We're going to go through your answers. We have, as with last time, we have randomized the list. Mm -hmm. So we know what the questions are. We've looked at the questions. Uh, but we don't know what order they're going to come up in. So we're going to just start taking turns. Yeah. Shall I begin? I believe so. All right. Our first question comes from Eric, who asks... Now, this is uh, in response, in reference 
to a news article we discussed about mammals losing a certain ability to repair mm-hmm. DNA. So there was a news article that suggested that certain fish have lost this DNA repair ability by living in caves out of the sunlight. Could mammals have evolved a similar thing, which they have, due to being nocturnal in their ancestry? Yeah. Eric says, could mammals losing the ability to repair DNA through interaction with sunlight be correlated with fur development in synapsids and a decrease in direct sun exposure? I was considering that as an alternative mechanism, or at least acting in conjunction with a nocturnal or subterranean lifestyle. So basically, could it be that they're receiving less sunlight because they're furry? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I I definitely could see that that there could have been a, a you know correlation or a a combined effect from something like that. Uh, but I I don't know you know. I don't know how often furry animals get sunburned. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit skeptical on that one, only because uh, birds mm-hmm. don't seem to have a similar yeah. circumstance. So certainly, I, I guess it wouldn't be acting alone. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of mammals also have at least partially exposed skin yep. somewhere, so you'd think they're still receiving sunlight. So I don't think that that would be the only cause, but... I, as Eric said, perhaps acting in conjunction, that's an interesting thought. You would mm-hmm. yeah, that, that should protect the skin from sunlight exposure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, so, that, yes. that's something. We'd perhaps. have to look at modern furry animals and see how they respond to the sun compared yeah. to less th- furry ones. That's a thesis project. There you go. So go to grad school, <laughs> uh, study mammals and, and fur response. <laughs> that's an, it's an interesting thought. Absolutely. All right. Next question is from Haley, and it says, oh, this is a fun one. Have we domesticated ourselves? How would we know, and does domestication lead to an increased presence of maladaptive traits? Ooh, so I love this topic. Back in episode 27, have we domesticated ourselves? I don't think technically that we could say that we have domesticated ourselves. No. Because domestication, in its in its vague, loose definition, is when one species takes control of the reproductive habits and genetic legacy of another species. Yes. So, in that sense, I guess either all species have domesticated themselves or none of them have. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I don't think you could technically say that we have domesticated ourselves, but I think I get what Haley's getting at, that that we have sort of strangely adjusted our own selective forces. Well, we in many ways, we've effectively removed ourselves from most pressures of natural selection because we reformat the environment to meet our needs and have forced our way to the top of the food chain either by eliminating competition or through tool use. So, like, we definitely have skewed our breeding path, you know, our evolutionary path. But, yeah, I, I don't know if it would be technically domesticated. Now, the increased presence of maladaptive traits, I definitely think, is something that humans have to worry about because we are... We are finding ways to 
circumvent illness and old age and diseases without evolving them out. Right. Now, I guess if if I want to get semantic, so maladaptive traits, right? Traits that are are bad, basically yeah, not, bad not for helpful. You. I you know, we when I think about maladaptive traits in domestication, we talked about, you know, dogs with squished in faces mm-hmm. and dogs that have trouble breathing or sitting and with humans, right? We have lots of inherited disorders and diseases because we can survive those. Although, technically speaking, I push up my glasses, <laughs> um, we measure fitness in part by a species' ability to survive in its environment, and we're surviving just fine in our environment yep. that we've made for ourselves. Same thing with like dogs and chickens and stuff. Like, Yes, technically they have bad traits, yeah, but they're not har- harming their ability to survive in the environment they have to survive in. So it's a it's a it's an interesting um, d- terminological discussion. This used to be my my mad conspiracy conspiracy theorist you know obsession when I was in college because I I had this realization <laughs> that we have effectively removed ourselves from the typical pressures of natural selection during undergrad, and I just became obsessed with the concept, not in like a concerned way, but just it was fascinating to me, just the idea that almost every aspect of our society works against natural selection. And, you know, we have very few kids. We use medicine to keep anyone from being bred out through, you know, genetic issues. And we are not, you know, uh, um, competing the same way that most organisms are. So I was used to be obsessed with this and my friends would always be like, well, what's what's wrong with that? It's like I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying it's <laughs> it's, just it's just weird. It's just weird. You know, the worst the worst outcome I could think of back then is if someday a you know a sci-fi post-apocalyptic event happens and all of our hospitals go away, then we might be in trouble as a species. Then our fitness plummets. <laughs> yes, as does all of our fa- wonderful domesticated animals. Yes, that's the <laughs> only time it's a bad thing. <laughs> well, thanks, Haley. That's a that's a fun question. That's a cool one. This next one. Oh, boy. This one's (laughs) so so we have some sciencey questions and we have some more fun questions. This is from Ranjeev, who was our guest for our fifth spotlight uh, episode, which we released back in September. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Uh, Ranjeev is putting us on the spot. He asks, (laughs) which one is better? Bivalves? Or brachiopods. Now, this is something that came up in the spotlight discussion, <laughs> and Will and I both declined to answer back then. Yeah. Now, that this is it. Will, remember that we had a bivalve expert and a brachiopod yes, expert did. on the podcast, so we're going to disappoint somebody. All right. So the, the way I'm going to answer this in, in the safest way possible is purely aesthetically speaking. I like brachiopods because they look like little munchy mouths from like like a pac-man or like a prana (laughs) plant type thing so so i'm gonna go with that i see there (laughs) well i i hate to disappoint ranjeev but i am also going to go with brachiopods oh no (laughs) oh no i was kind of hoping one of us would choose bivalves uh brachiopods are so cool and they have this wonderful fossil record and they make such these, these beautiful fossils, and I love the the kind of symmetry 
that they have, and it's really neat. Um, so Ranjiv presumably will not be coming back to the Common Descent <laughs> podcast, and we're really sorry to see him go. Bivalves are incredibly important for the diets of most of the animals at the aquarium. And they're delicious. Yeah, so I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so with apologies to Ranjiv uh, and a shout out to Alicia, <laughs> we we have spoken. Listeners, what do you think? Yes. Check out the Spotlight episodes three and five and let us know if you prefer bivalves or brachiopods. Disagree with us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so our next question is from Samuel and it says... Just wondering if you guys are bringing out some merch. Any hints? Yes. 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 Uh, start. We've been talking about merch for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. Merch. Common Descent merchandise. At the beginning of next year, when January comes around, we are going to sit down and officially plan out distribution at for, at the very least, t-shirts. Yes. That's, that's our, the first one that we definitely want to do. Yeah, so those, uh, the Common Descent t-shirts you've seen us wearing when we post on social media, we will, at at least the plan is to make those available and then perhaps some other things as well. We just have to decide how best it is to do that. Yeah, we just, we gotta figure out the best way to do it. But yes, the answer is yes. And the hint (laughs) is soon. Our next question is from Julie, who asks, we're back in, we're back in science-y technical this a, mode this here. is an interesting one it is i had to do some research mm-hmm. how can we be confident of the head size of diplodocus the long-necked sauropod dinosaur when the heads aren't found attached to the bodies couldn't the small heads be from younger individuals and the big bodies from older individuals are we reconstructing these animals incorrectly because we insist on attaching the heads to anybody rather than just saying we don't know very interesting, and I honestly do not have a specific answer. My my gut, you know, or my my initial thought would be: I know there have been sauropods found with skulls or partial skulls, right. and using those and their proportions is what I feel would would give us the the ability to make some some associations with detached skulls and Diplodocus, but. That, I don't know enough about Diplodocus to know. I, truly. I did do some digging. So Diplodocus is, is an interesting situation because uh, uh, Julie point mentioned that the heads aren't found attached to the bodies. And I thought that was weird. I thought surely there have been Diplodocus heads found in association with bodies. And as it turns out, there have been, but the cases where the heads have been associated with the bodies, those specimens have later been reassigned outside of Diplodocus. (laughs) So there have been specimens where it was, oh, this is Diplodocus, what the head looks like. But the more we learn about these sauropods, though all of those specimens got shifted over to other names, which has left us in a situation where we don't actually have any definitive Diplodocus skulls. Hmm. But uh, we certainly aren't just attaching any head to anybody. Uh, That's not something that we have to be worried about. In part because Diplodocus skulls uh, across the family, the Diplodocids, tend to be pretty similar. Uh, Apatosaurus and, and other or closely related dinosaurs, the skulls don't change a whole lot. So even if we're taking a guess based on these other skulls, we're we, it's it we're almost certainly not off by much. Yeah, 
And as far as younger to older individuals, there are other clues in the yes. bone structure of both the skull and the body to tell you a general age of the specimen. So there's, it, it, it's probably not the case that we're going to be mixing up, you know, a, a, a really young diplodocus with a re- skull with a really old body or something like that. Yeah. No, that there's definitely ways to try to determine whether you're looking at a fully grown or still growing animal. Yes. Uh, but a really cool question. And, and no, it, 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 it it really does highlight how our understanding can change as names shift around. Well, and it's an important question because this, this is one of those questions that, you know, there have been instances where we haven't asked these kind of questions before until, you know, a, a long time after something had been associated with something else. And then finally someone went, are we sure? And then people looked <laughs> and went, you know what? Yep, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> also, the Diplodocids sounds like a Saturday morning cartoon well, show. So the the two ways to pronounce <laughs> the, the family, right? You can say the Dipl- <laughs> Diplodocidae or the Diplodocidae. But if yep. you say Diplodocids sounds better than Diplodocids, but it means that it, it, it should correlate with you saying the name Diplodocus and I refuse. <laughs> so I will say Diplodocids because it sounds silly. The Diplodocids. So I can continue saying. Solving mysteries. Diplo- <laughs> It's the Jurassic. <laughs> the Diplodocids. <laughs> Thank you, Julie, for that question. Uh, now, our next question is from Anon. Wasn't that the bad guy in Korra? Yeah, it was. It was. That was, uh, that, that was, that was Amon. Well, uh, yeah, Amon. Amon watches Friends, because Amon asks, <laughs> I'm, I'm going with it, okay. how accurate is the portrayal of paleontology in Friends, i.e. through Ross? Terrible. It's pretty bad. Ross is awful. <laughs> I was so sad as a kid that we got the lame one. Well, there are a few times where he mentions sciencey stuff. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a, a joke that I really really liked as a kid where he talks about Australopithecus and, and Homo <laughs> habilis, but he doesn't do paleontology. Like he very rarely mentions it. We see him like arranging exhibits, mm-hmm. but uh, he's a bad paleontologist and a bad person. <laughs> we should not. There's let, like, let us not aspire to be Ross. There's like one time where we see him preparing to give a talk at a conference. Yeah. And and he has to redo the whole thing. And that that's that's the closest <laughs> it comes to really to where I was watching and I was like, you know what? This I've actually seen this moment with other paleontolog like that's the one time he felt paleontologisty. Not great. <laughs> Mike asks here there's this is a callback to the last Q and A. Would you rather fight a terror bird sized kiwi or a hundred kiwi sized terror birds for uh, to remind people the largest of the terror birds were these six to seven or even eight foot tall mm-hmm. monstrous predatory birds and kiwis are tiny flightless birds that live on uh, New Zealand yeah I think they're like at biggest the size of a football or yeah they're not like, very large not not like like an American football uh yeah I, between those two, uh, which one would I like to see is the Terrorbird sites kiwis because kiwi egg is like the majority of the mass of the body. Ooh, oh wow, that'd be like a six foot egg. That's an egg you could fit in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would absolutely be more freaked out by the kiwi sized terrorbirds. Uh, <laughs> I just feel like that's it. It would be like uh, pigeons that that are scurrying around at at fast 
cat speeds with these yeah. little blade beaks. And I, mm, no, no. If I'm picking a fight, I would go with the terror bird size kiwi. Yeah, because a hundred chickens with blades on their faces is not something I want to fight. And birds don't like anyone who's I've never been, but I've seen it happen. Chickens chase people all the time and geese chase people all the time. I played Ocarina of Time. I know. I know how dangerous they could be. Like, and now they actually have a weapon worthwhile. No, uh -uh. nope. No, no, thank you. No. Give me the giant kiwi any day. I shall tame it. It shall hatch its giant egg. (laughs) 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 That you're getting ahead of us. All right. Jim asks, answering for each other specifically, or each other's speciality, what is the most interesting croc and snake fossil to you and why? Now, I just realized what that means. Is he's he's saying answering for each other. Yes. So what is my... Oh, oh yes. wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that. What is the most interesting croc fossil to me? I would say... That like if I were to study crocs, the ones mm-hmm. that I would try to, I would want to look at the Thalatosuchians or the Metriorhynchians, the aquatic crocs. Yeah, the the marine, the marine Aqu- croc. That's just because secondarily aquatic <laughs> vertebrates kind of, kind of are your things. so cool. I love it. <laughs> like that's yeah. I, I'd probably say the aquatic ones because that's it's such a cool evolutionary trajectory. Absolutely. So uh, when I was thinking of it, I, I thought of specific fossils. And the first two that came to my mind was the little baby snake in the amber. Yep. Or the one that was found associated with the sauropod nest. Oh, that's... um. Uh, uh, oh, oh, boy. Well, I have the link somewhere. Card. <laughs> I have it somewhere <laughs> on my laptop. I have that link. Uh, <laughs> it'll, that, it'll come to me in a moment. Those two are super interesting. I... I especially one with the sauropods because when i was rereading it it was mentioning that like its jaw could not open as wide as modern snakes which yes immediately like my brain started spiraling was well how does it eat (laughs) and and, like almost every snake we know now eats basically the same way what is what are you doing that's so small stuff its name was sanaja by the way yes i remembered i did not look it up (laughs) i remember though the baby snake in amber was going to be one of the if I was answering for snakes, that was going to yep. be one of the ones. Though I have to say one of my favorites is the one I found at Gray. That, <laughs> that was articulated, actually, vertebrae in line with one another. That's one of the coolest things I ever got to do when I was out in the field. That that was an awesome find. Our next question is actually a grouped question. This is a... Several people ask the same basic question mm-hmm. about how to get involved in paleontology. So, very quickly, through them... Uh, Joel, the future elementary teacher, good on you, Joel, (laughs) asks, what opportunities are there for citizen science and paleontology? How difficult is it to volunteer for a dig or lab if you're not already part of the institution? Blaine asks, what's a good way for someone like me to enter the field of paleontology professionally? Sam asks, without a bunch of school, are there any paleo career opportunities? And a grade seven student who loves paleontology asks... What's the best path to becoming a paleontologist? How can one start on that path ASAP? What can a paleontology enthusiast do to further his knowledge? These are all so, such good questions. How do you get involved with paleontology out of academics? Mm-hmm. 
and or as a career. Yeah, it's actually not hard. Uh, you can volunteer at just about any dig site or museum, and they they don't ask for a resume. They're not going to, you know, check that you you are already an expert. Uh, many of the volunteers that would work at the Gray Fossil Site and at other fossil sites have almost no background. They just have an interest to either learn or help with the endeavor. Uh, so you can absolutely volunteer at a museum for the, the lab procedure. You can volunteer to do uh, public side you know, tours or other things like that if you're wanting to just get dip toes into that environment. You can volunteer with uh, dig seasons in the field. You know, there's definitely chances to volunteer for that and get involved. Uh, many people who now work in labs started in that that process. You know, they didn't they didn't go through the process of getting a a master's or doctorate and then researching and then going to the lab many of them they've been doing field and lab work since they were interested and now they are still doing that and they're now experts in their own right you know just from their experience so there's absolutely ways to come into it without having to go just through the academia route and there's plenty of ways you can participate with the the i mean there's there's uh fossil communities and clubs that are that aim to promote and uh uh you know discussion and fossil topics as well so like there, there's definitely lots of ways to get in there and as far as becoming a paleontologist there's no like specific path you have to take there are paleontologists who were biologists there are paleontologists who are geologists there are paleontologists who were biochemists nowadays there are paleontologists who were computer you know engineers and graphics you know people who are working in the the cg world of you know um making i'm mix i'm losing my words but to make uh <laughs> analyses on the computer and and portray physics engines or things like that to now picture fossil organisms in the same light so there's there's not one route there focus on focus on whatever you find most interesting about whatever aspect of paleontology it is that makes you excited. And you have to take those science classes that is required uh, <laughs> <laughs> that you need that, but just focus on a, a science route and focus on whichever aspect of it is you find most interesting that can be connected back to the fossils. That, that's really the best advice I have. Absolutely. I would only add to on the subject of how to get involved early as will said find a museum you could or a university yes is another good place to look or a local fossil club because that will get you involved with people who are doing it give you a sense of sort of how the the, the work is right how, how you like the work and then as far as getting involved with oh i should mention that you said yeah, it's it's certainly not every museum or university, mm -hmm. but I've never been turned down. Yeah. Like people are generally either very enthusiastic to accept help or to point you in the direction of somebody who needs it. And then as far as furthering your knowledge, especially if you are not going to college yet, like if you're in 
grade seven. Follow Paleontology News. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are forums online. Honestly, one of the best places to go is Twitter these days. Yeah, follow a paleontologist. Follow all the paleontologists. (laughs) You'll learn people's names. You'll see news. You'll see discussions. Uh, There are paleontologists on Instagram. There are paleontologists Mm -hmm. on Facebook. You know, the next time you see a paleontology news article, perhaps one that we talk about or that you see online, somewhere in the article, there'll be a link to the paper. Mm-hmm. Look at the author's names and see if you can find them online. Mm-hmm. Practice and you'll reading start to, the... Yeah, to, yeah. to recognize those people. Go ahead. Practice reading the abstracts to the papers is going to be a real... That's a really great way to start building that knowledge and building a skill. Because one of the things you will have to do if you're going to actually want to study and do any research or just get a degree is you're going to have to learn how to read scientific papers, uh, which is is one of the biggest hurdles for many a person entering academia because they are not always easy to read. So practice just by reading the the abstract, the opening statements and, and getting used to some of the language and, you know, defining some of the terms that are used and stuff like that would be a really a good practice just in general. Hopefully that's all helpful. Uh, great question. That's probably the most common question that I get as a yeah. paleo psychom person. Is well, how do I do this? And the answer is talk to people, find people near you that you can get involved mm-hmm. with, read stuff on the internet. Yes. That's very broadly. That's the way to go. I mean, that that's how I got. I, I volunteered at the Gray Fossil site as a, as a senior, as a junior in college as a for a paper that I was writing and then when I graduated applied to the master's program so volunteering is a is an amazing tool to let you know whether it's what you're interested in and get to meet the people that you might hope to uh work with or work alongside indeed indeed good questions cool questions our next question is from Renee what finding or technique in paleontology would make you happiest to see done correctly in a movie other than a floofy T-Rex, of course? <laughs> Which would have been my first answer. Oh, honestly. yeah, feathers. Feathers <laughs> that, would have been would... immediate. You know, yep. so a finding, I guess, I mean, honestly, it'd be really cool if we're talking about findings and techniques mm-hmm. to see new, like, molecular techniques histological right right, like cutting through the bone and examining growth rates and stuff Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff has really not been touched on at all in in films and i think that'd be really cool it in terms of just a thing that i'd love to see them get right uh correct theropod hand posture yes oh that's a good one or literally anything about pterosaurs (laughs) I would like to see pterosaurs in movies done at all correctly. That is my biggest, that is my biggest gripe. There's, there are no good pterosaurs in movies and I'd really like to see it. I think that, I think that's where I would put my vote too. Now that you say that is absolutely that, that would be fantastic if we could see them portrayed a, a just percentile correctly. Yeah. Thanks, Renee. Our next question is from Roberto. If each of you could interview one paleontologist or other scientist from the past to put on the podcast, which would it be and why? 
What an awesome question. <laughs> That's so good. I this one this one's hard. I don't have an answer that like jumps to my mind. There's a whole bunch of like the big names, but I I don't know what I would ask them if if I had the opportunity. <laughs> like I don't know what question. If you if you have a answer right away, go ahead because I, I I don't do, have one. Actually, I thought of well, this one even beforehand, and I still couldn't come up with an answer right away. It's it's very tempting to say oh yeah Darwin and Cuvier yeah. and mm-hmm. Martian Cope and I feel like we know so much about those th- them fellas. Yep. The person that comes to my mind is Mary Anning. That was that was that was high on my list of of people I was thinking through. I would love to sit down with Mary Anning and just ask her about her life and her experience and how she got involved and put her on the podcast as a demonstration of what you can do as a person getting making your own way in paleontology mm-hmm. as a woman in paleontology especially in her time yep and also because then we could sit down with mary anning and be like hey you're super famous <laughs> there's a terrible movie coming out about you in the near future <laughs> lucky you <laughs> it's, it'd be fun to ask because a lot of the stuff she was finding was the first time it was being found yep to get asked those questions of how how, what were your first impressions you know did what were you able to recognize you know did did it immediately jump out as the remains of an animal or was it bizarre you know just how how do you interpret a fossil the first time you're ever seeing yeah yeah that thing yeah she she gets my vote yeah i i think that's that was that was high up there but it was it was uh it was hard for me to to not just get blinded by all the the famous names, but I think she <laughs> of all the famous names, she's the one that I would like to hear from. Oh, we'll see what we can do. All right, we'll get we to get work her. On that. We'll get her DNA out of an insect in amber, <laughs> and we will resurrect her. <laughs> I have a bed bug. <laughs> Next question: Ryan asks, "What was Earth's atmosphere like before cyanobacteria cleaned it out with the oxygen they produced through photosynthesis?" Was it hazy, a different color, opaque, clear? This is a really good question that I do not know the answer to. Nope. Um, It was made of different stuff, but Mm -hmm. we don't, as far as I know, we don't have a really solid idea of what the composition of the very early atmosphere of the Earth was. Methane, carbon dioxide, like the the levels of those gases is probably going to affect the answer to this question. My guess is that it wouldn't necessarily have been hazier. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually, I, I've read some evidence that the atmosphere in the early Earth was actually thinner, perhaps. Which would make which, sense. Which might make it even less opaque. I would not be at all surprised if it was a different color. Probably. I, if you look at, you know, Mars has a very thin atmosphere, and Mars's sky is a different color than our mm-hmm. sky. Venus is insane, but Venus's sky is a different color than our sky. So, yeah, I I think it would look like an atmosphere, but it would, I I don't know what color it would be. And and a big part of the reason our atmosphere is the color it is today, or our sky is the color it is today. I mean, we can't see the atmosphere in our room, you know, but the reason the sky is the color it is is because water refracts light in the blue spectrum and water vapor in the atmosphere refracts the blue light out of the sunlight giving it a blue tone so i don't think that that's true 
I don't think it necessarily has to do with water vapor. It's just it's the particulate matter in the atmosphere that scatters the light in a process called Rayleigh scattering. Um, I don't know that it's specific to water molecules. I think I that it, believe it, it is because be blue light travels farthest in water, and that's why things look blue underwater, and that's why that light is the one that is promoted the most. Mm. I think it has to do with partic- particle size in the atmosphere. I mean, that might be what helps with the scattering, but I'm I'm 99% sure that the it's the reason it's blue is because of water vapor. Uh, that's the reason that color is the one that it has scattered instead of any of the other colors. I, it scatters it because of the, the shorter wavelength is what I have been taught, is that the actual, the size of the wavelength is why it scatters, which is why sunsets are red, because the all the short wavelengths have been scattered out of it by the time it reaches you from the low angle, so all that's left are the red wavelengths. Maybe. I, 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 ah. learned, I learned this in class at one point, so... Go Google this, listeners. Yeah. I don't We're know. not... That's, there you go. Go Google it up. <laughs> <laughs> Good question, though. Yes. So the next question is from Cheryl, one of our, one of our most diehard listeners. Hi, Cheryl. Here, this is a personal question. Did you start college intending to major in geology slash paleontology? If not, what got you interested in paleontology? That is a Will, question. I I started elementary school intending to be a paleontologist. Uh, so I, I <laughs> you figured I, it out early. I said when I was five years old, I'm going to be a paleontologist, and I never strayed from that goal necessarily. Though I did, when I was in college, have a short period where I was really interested in trying to get into acting or performance or voiceover or something like that or comedy i was i was interested in that and and the podcast has given me a nice outlet for that interest but even while i was considering all of that i went for the biology program and became a biology major and got a biology scholarship so like i was i never took any classes outside of that i just was like yeah, no, I'll get my paleontology degree and then I'll go be a comedian. Uh, was <laughs> you make jokes about dinosaurs. Literally what my thought was. I was planning to <laughs> bank on the fact that I would be a, a Professor Harris, the comedian. Uh, and now you get to make jokes about paleontology on the podcast. Yep. And so I, I get to do it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I, I went in still wanting that, but I, I did have a, a side interest for a little while. But I got interested in dinosaurs back before I can remember it, so... According to my parents, it was very early on. I was interested in paleo as a kid uh, as well, but the, I didn't start thinking about it as a actual thing to do until late high school. When I got into Science Olympiad is what mm-hmm. made me finally decide to go for paleo. So by the time I started college, I did actually intend to... Ma- I searched for college to major in paleontology. So abs- yeah, we, we are both... Uh, in this in the way there's a lot of stories out there of people who got did something else and then transferred into paleontology yes. like i was a software designer for 15 years and then i i, I got my degree in in the science we did the opposite <laughs> we were on the academic track and then went away from research and academia to do more science uh, education stuff yes absolutely good question indeed our next question is from another Ryan. This is Ryan S. Well, Different Ryan, Ryan H. was our last Ryan. And he asks, do you think there is a way gliding snakes could develop true powered flight? 
He also makes a suggestion (laughs) that I really like. Yes, he does. (laughs) He says, maybe they could fling their bodies around like a helicopter rotor. I like that. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, I have thought about this question before. Well, that's convenient. So, well, yeah, gliding snakes are have sort of this sinuous frisbee shape that they take. Right? They're, their bodies, they flatten their bodies out so that they have this sort of uh, concave, sort of sort of fold, you know, uh, arced shape, mm-hmm. so that they catch the air underneath them. I don't. The, the the two ways that I've thought about how they could achieve actual flight instead of gliding are either to fold their body into sort of a bow and flap mm-hmm. so they have a loop out to either side and then flap or to corkscrew mm-hmm. the way that uh, uh there are some aquatic animals that that seem to sort of move by corkscrewing through the water i don't know how feasible those are <laughs> but those are my two thoughts it makes me wonder if if uh uh some on uh, a body feature like a cobra hood could be adapted to widen out anything into more of a a winged shape interesting interesting so using only a portion of the body yeah and then like shortening the body down to becoming a a more proportional i feel like you'd need denser atmosphere and less gravity to make most of these yeah i guess really so that it is more like swimming yeah well yeah and then or you could do the sea slug thing yeah and undulate up the sides I mm-hmm. guess your idea, if they if they became super short, mm-hmm. and then all the ribs fanned out, you could make like little wings. Yeah, interesting. It's I don't know because... how well you could flap those, but yeah, exactly. Because all the other flying vertebrates have used their arms, mm-hmm. and snakes, alas, don't have this. <laughs> it's, it's oh no, no, we threw those out a while back. We didn't know they would come in handy. Yeah, no, we didn't know we were going to need them. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> cool question yeah that's a everyone fun you tell us your ideas and uh make some art yes chip asks how do you handle your fame and celebrity now i'm so glad you asked chip it's fine it's nice for someone to finally ask because yeah it's gonna be good to get this off our oh, chest man it's just the pressure sometimes it's gets, a struggle it, it, it gets to be a lot and so it's nice for someone to yeah it's it's i yeah. think i've we've had two people that have recognized <laughs> us in public <laughs> it is very i know very few people in person who who actually listen to the podcast we i i actually know a few but they're my co-workers who found out about it and from yeah me yeah and, i have a lot of co-workers so I, yeah i have that but i think uh brandon at Crockfest bumped mm-hmm. into after and then um I'm blanking on that name, but uh, at Dragon Con. Oh, the uh, the Darwin and Wallace store yep. person who's, oh, mm, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> I don't remember his name off the top of my head either. It was a cool name. That's what I remember about it. It was a memorable name, but apparently. Whoops. But yeah, th- those guys. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's 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 about it so far. But it, it is it is kind of fun. Uh, th- there's that little bit of like... when. I, I'll mention working on the podcast and someone else will be like, oh, you have a podcast? And getting to tell them about it, that is kind of like, oh, yes, I do. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. Being at DragonCon was a lot of fun because 
then you, we got to sort of do that a little bit and be like, oh, hey, uh, we're we we hey, we're kind of a big deal. Maybe <laughs> maybe you've heard of us, the Common Descent Podcast. <laughs> it's it's been fun, but yeah, so far, well, we will let you know when it arrives. <laughs> Tell your <laughs> friends about us, <laughs> and we will let you know. I'm on the Darwin and Wallace store website looking to see if i can find this person's name and i can't find it so i apologize that i've forgotten your name sir we, we you are, were you're a cool person we're bad at names <laughs> <laughs> all right next question sam asks is there anything in the fossil record that seems to have just popped into existence no obvious transition uh i believe they even gave the example of bats no that's their... a different question that was a different question thank you all right yep. i couldn't remember uh but bats are that's an example of that. Yes. It's sort of a class. Yeah, it, there's actually a lot in terms of vertebrates, like turtles and snakes have very little transition, but bats and pterosaurs just kind of, they are now bats and they are now pterosaurs. Yeah. But especially a lot of squishy things. Yes. Invertebrates. Uh, a lot of like insect groups end up with that. A lot of things that are just really hard to fossilize. So, yeah, no, absolutely there are things that we do not have a good lead up evolutionarily to them. A lot of delicate animals. Yes, those those tend not to, to do great in the fossil record. Someday, we'll keep digging. Get out there and dig. Next question. Gabby asks, You are granted access to a time machine for one round trip to any time in Earth history to observe an extinct ecosystem as it was in life, when and where will you go and why? This will. is a fun one. This yep, is a fun I one. have an, I have a go-to answer for this. <laughs> I, I did not have a go-to answer. I have, there are, there are three that come to mind. Oh my goodness. So I now don't, and I, I think I know which one I would go with, but the, the, the three that immediately popped to mind is Cretaceous, Antarctica to see what polar yet not frozen environment would look like where you're dealing with long nights and long times of sun, but yet have forests. Right, right. And so, like, how in the world does that ecosystem function? Because we don't have a great, I mean, we have some kind of examples of that, but not lot, not like ones where it's not still bitterly cold. Yeah. So, that and then the other two would either be i'd want to see miocene australia to see <laughs> quincana or cretaceous sahara to see any of the terrestrial crocs that are running around there nice <laughs> my my answer is the late cretaceous of i mean either north america i ideally i can go to north america and europe mm -hmm. late cretaceous specifically because the late cretaceous has uh, tons of feathered dinosaurs, dromaeosaurs, including, um, well, Deinonychus isn't necessarily the very late, but things like Deinonychus, mosasaurs, limbed aquatic snakes, mm -hmm. and the largest pterosaurs. Also, there's still sauropods and ceratops. That's where I want to be. Yeah. Uh, just the convergence of all the best uh, prehistoric reptiles. Late Cretaceous. <laughs> that's where I want and if I'm cheating, I can then run up to Canada and see the polar forests. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you'll be in the south, and I'll be in the north. I'll meet you at the yep. equator. Yep. And we'll swim in the Mediterranean, in the Tethys, with 
limbed snakes. That would be fantastic. Sam, a different Sam, Sam L, asks, Would you consider turning your speculative evolution goggles towards how today's flora and fauna would evolve if climate change continued at its current path? How long would the carbon stay in the atmosphere? What would the world look like by then? And how might surviving animals have evolved to adapt? I think of this all the time. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> so do a lot of scientists. <laughs> yeah, so the the main thing that my brain always goes to when I think about if things continue the way they look to be going is that we are going to suddenly get a lot of shallow seas again. And yeah. that's going to change up. It's going to disconnect some areas that are connected now. So we're going to get some... Islandifying of areas again. We're gonna get uh, a lot more shallow, salty areas, which is really good for ocean life to diversify. Very so true. We could see we could see a, a even you know even though right now reefs are not doing well, shallow seas are ideal for reefs. So right, a rebound, a reef bound. We could see a reef bound. Uh, my hope. And and that's all we can ever do, is that <laughs> marine crocodiles <laughs> <laughs> making a comeback? Because I mean, we already have the saltwater and American crocodile, which are ocean-going crocs. So the environment would become even more favorable to them, most likely. I mean, there's potential that it might not. The loss of you know some areas might hurt them, but they, their range will probably extend. So. We'll probably yeah. see a lot more of that. You'd see a lot of expansion of tropical regimes. Yes. W warm climate creatures moving further north or south, including all of our favorite reptiles. As I say, we'll probably see a boon in venomous snakes. Snakes uh, in general, I would say. Yeah. Like boas and pythons would come back to to the United States well, and, and bring them on back. For a direct example, um, here in Florida... The Burmese python, which is an invasive species in the Everglades area, is only regulated to the south of Florida because that's the only place where it's tropical enough for them to survive. If they come too far north when they eat something, it rots in their belly, so they can't do that. Mm -hmm. They're going to take over Florida. like They're, they're yep. going to be able to move uh, up Florida, and as soon as they get into the panhandle, they can then move across the rest of those states. So if things continue to warm... We already have a python who has a, a preemptive foothold here that's going to spread. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, and now this is all in the long run, like what a warmer world would look like. Current climate change, I think, in, in the shorter term is going to all these wonderful long term things are going to have to develop out of the leftovers yes. of the mass extinction event that modern day climate change will cause like this is very rapid very intense yes change in temperature coupled of course with all the nonsense that that humans the other yes. nonsense humans have been doing so like you mentioned with the reefs like first we're gonna lose the reefs mm -hmm. and we're gonna lose a lot of our big animals and we're going to see a lot of spread of diseases and we're gonna see spreads of opportunistic organisms so it's yeah. gonna be a a world full of weeds for for a bit uh, in, in a warmer 
world. And the carbon, incidentally, will stay up in the atmosphere for millennia. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that That's not be, going away anytime soon. It'll be a long time before that disperses. And trying to say who those survivors are going to be that this future is built off of is nigh impossible. Because even animals yeah, that we... Small things. Yeah, even, even things that we can see having a boon right now, like jellyfish and certain squids, are, our populations are exploding in different areas of the world. And, you know, we see some animals doing very well with the changes that are happening. That there's no there's no saying that that's going to persist. You know, yeah, that, that that could absolutely turn back the other way very quickly on them when the ecosystem they are feeding off of collapses, you know, on itself. So, yeah. So there's some speculation. <laughs> if the crocs make it though, and if crocs it's and snakes make it, it'll be it'll be crocs and snakes. Bring them on back up here in Tennessee. <laughs> where they belong next question comes from your worst nightmare jenna and <laughs> jenna asks what are your prehistoric spirit animals hi jenna we were talking about co-workers before this. <laughs> jenna is one of my co-workers i like this question what are your prehistoric spirit I animals? i like this one i i well, I mean, obviously some kind of snake. I, how do you determine a spirit animal? Is it so, an animal that represents your spirit? Yeah, I, I've always thought of it more of an an animal that you feel mirrors your persona or personality or quirks more so than what would be your favorite. Right. What is your What is your prehistoric Patronus? Yes, yes, exactly. Interesting. Do you have... I, I have an answer to this one. I have a I have a couple that always jump to mind. These aren't like these are not my favorite fossil animals, but every time I see them, I'm always like, yeah, <laughs> giant sloths, yeah, or therizinosaurus. <laughs> that those are those are good choices, right? Like just big lazy, big big just <laughs> I and I I know I'm personifying them, like I'm I'm anthropomorphizing them by doing it, but just big chill. Kind of pop-bellied, long-armed guys just just eaten. <laughs> so I feel like I would be something that it like some kind of bird, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something that is is hyperactive and like preening. I feel like it would preen a lot, not yep. preening in a sense of like in a narcissistic way. But just like this feather is out of place. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, something that doesn't like the cold. <laughs> <laughs> A bird of paradise of of some variety. Yeah, some kind of like 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 Hesperornis would be fun. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of imagine Hesperornis off doing its own thing. Something something birdy and not particularly social. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, maybe that. I can picture that. I can picture that. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, Jenna, regarding your other suggestion that you made here, um, I did it off mic. It was great. You should have been there. Yep. Our next question <laughs> comes from Amy. This is a, this is another one of these detailed science-y inquiries. <gasps> there has been a lot of arguing whether interesting items on fossils were actually soft tissues like blood vessels, nerve clusters, wing membranes or just preserved biofilms or microbial mats. I find it interesting 
that these biofilms could be mistaken for biological structures and that they are often found in the very shape of what would be there if it was soft tissue. Could it be that microbes are growing on those soft tissues and that even though it might be microbial, it would naturally preserve the shape of what it was lying on? That's a really good question. It is. And so there, I, I know, and I am not a microbial or micro or soft tissue paleontologist, but uh, I know there's a lot of those things that is still being determined and debated exactly what category it falls into. So it's still a very new overall field of trying to parse out what is what. Yes, uh, so yes. it's it's hard to answer, you know, just on the, the face of it. But if we're going off the idea of bacteria growing over and leaving behind, you know, matter, some sort of fossilization evidence. Uh, I mean, it, there definitely is an argument to be made that it might give an indication of where soft tissue was. Um, yeah, this what, what what Amy is suggesting has actually been noted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That one of the reasons we, it can be easy to mistake bacterial leftovers for cellular leftovers, you know, soft tissue, mm -hmm. cellular leftovers, is because you might get different bacteria living in different parts yeah. of the body. It's also been suggested as a counter to some claims, for example, uh, with pigment molecules, where people have said, well, that looks like it might be biofilm. Others have said, well, but it occurs in stripes, which is what yep. you'd expect to see of coloration, not of you'd expect bacteria just to live wherever they could. Yep. So, yes, partially. There's also a lot like if you're looking for when it comes to outlines where there's there's a, you know, outline around the fossil. Uh, the bacteria definitely could have been growing on something else as well that was present. So there definitely could be contaminants, you know, if if your whatever organism was eaten by a predator and it was made a mess of, then the bacteria could grow in different locations that might not indicate the presence of soft, soft tissue in that area. So, right, right. You also, sometimes it's fragmentary. Yeah. Soft tissue. So it's not necessarily the shape we're trying to interpret remnants of, you know, blood vessels and such. Yeah. So there's there's definitely potential for that, but there's also lots of easy potential for it to be confuseled. But good question. And and confuseled it is. And more more discussion incoming. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that on the podcast in the future. <laughs> it's in a future news news section. Oh yeah, absolutely. Our next question comes from Mark, and Mark asks, is there a vertebrate group that you haven't covered yet on the show because it intimidates, in quotation marks, you in a similar way as covering plants or invertebrates does? If so, why? Well, so, yes, we have, we have commented often that invertebrates and plants and things that are not animals or plants are very intimidating subjects to cover because we don't know much about them, which is mm -hmm. why we have friends like Allie. Yep. As far as vertebrate groups, I mean, there's a reason that I don't do fish. I thought that's exactly the one <laughs> that I was going to bring up because sharks are, was hard enough. Yeah, fish are really, there's just so many of them and they're so weird and they have too many bones. Mm -hmm. So fish are intimidating, but we've done fish. We've done yeah. placoderms. We did sharks. We'll do more fish in the future. I don't think there's any that we have been avoiding for that reason. 
like or been putting off but there are definitely ones that we are intimidated by for that like yeah i don't think it's come up yet but if someone if if rodents ended up on our radar that'd be that'd be kind of intimidating yeah because just just because there's so much yeah oh absolutely like it's 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 there there are groups of animals you know taxa are not comparable and equivalent like yes <laughs> rodents like, versus sloths mm-hmm. is not nah but good good question it is our next question comes from tut hi tut i this is the first the second the second person on the podcast that i've met in person <laughs> i met tut at svp last last year calgary <gasps> tut says hi guys how are you hi tut how are you hi What's your favorite moment from 2018? Paleo slash science goings on or personal happenings are all fair game. Very cool. Well, it's been 365 days. I know, right? First, first part of your question: busy but good. Same busy here. but good. Yep. Busy, busy but good. The for the second question, I think the the for both personal and paleo podcast related. The, the two moments that came to mind for me when I, when I read this was uh, the panel at Dragon Con. Yeah. Going the, the, the immediate moment after that panel, like just having it soak in how well it had gone. And the moment of being confirmed that we were going to get to go to St. Louis just as our first ever requested event. Yep. Those yeah. two, those two are pretty. Ha- the The panel definitely is is the the warmest, fuzziest memory of 2018. Just because that <laughs> I I I had no words a- after that. That was just no. It was completely incredible. gobsmacked. Um, but th- those two moments, those two moments were pretty amazing. I would agree with the Dragon Con. I, mm. I mean, both of those certainly. But yeah, Dragon Con panel. Also, I returned to the Gray Fossil site this year. Yeah. And I, I remember walking back in and, and that's been that's been really great. Yeah. So thanks, Tut. I hope you're doing well. Mm-hmm. We have another question from Amon. Uh, Anon again. Yep. This guy's really, really persistent. Yeah. Very curious, very inquisitive. And this time Amon asks, why does nobody ever seem to talk about that fossil of the Protoceratops and the Velociraptor mid-fight? It seems so cool. Why does no one ever mention it? (laughs) (laughs) So what uh, our anonymous friend is referring to is... Anonymous is, with friends like these, Mm -hmm. is a fossil from Mongolia that uh, I I believe is probably a dune collapse. A lot of the ones out there are dune collapse. Mm -hmm. That Flash preserved a Velociraptor and a Protoceratops, both of which are small, like six foot long dinosaurs, locked in combat. And the the Velociraptor's got its toe claw on the neck of the Protoceratops, and the Protoceratops has got its mouth clamping on the arm of the Velociraptor. Like they were tussling, and then they got buried. Uh, I mean, the reason I don't ever bring it up is because. Everyone talks about it, although I guess that contradicts what the question says <laughs> that, feel, that no one talks about it. I feel like it's it's, it's one of those where we we have not mentioned it because, at, at least in the in the paleo world, it's one of the most famous fossils yeah, out there. I don't, I don't want to rehash it 
for people, which I, I guess is part of my bias that yeah. I just kind of have assumed everyone knows about it. But this is a great point. We have not talked about it. I get, and I guess it's kind of the same concept of why people aren't uh, constantly talking about The Godfather. It's like everyone knows it's an amazing movie, <laughs> you know, like, like yeah. so, so we just we all we we as a society are in agreement, and we can just move forward. So <laughs> it's, it's easy to yeah, it's easy to just forget to bring it up from time to time, just to remind people that it's completely awesome. Uh, but. You are absolutely correct. It's phenomenal. It's oh, such it's a so ridiculous, crazy. crazy fossil that, yeah, I honestly, I'm a little burned out on it. Yeah, I think, is the, I think is the thing where I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I've talked about that before. No, it's super cool. We'll have to talk about it at some point. Absolutely. It, when it's one of those we'll cool fossils. It. Not only is it a cool event, like thing that's going on, but because so many times when it's like we found a fossil and this is what was able to be seen in it. But when you actually look at it without the, you know, microscope view that the researchers are taking, you can't actually make out. Like when I mentioned the the snake in the sauropod nest, if you just look at the fossil, the picture of the actual specimen, it, it, you can't make out it's a hard snake. To tell. Yeah, you can't tell. Yeah. This one? No, it's a protoceratops biting the hand of a velociraptor. Yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it, it, is, it is picturesque. It's amazing. Huh. So we, we will talk about it more. Indeed, indeed. Next question is from Pablo. Pablo says, You talk a lot about mosasaurs, but haven't done a podcast on them or on any marine reptile whatsoever. Can we expect a marine reptile podcast in the future? Pablo, have I got an episode for you. It came <laughs> the out the day before yes. this, this this episode did. <laughs> yeah, we Pablo still have... also notes snakes rule. And yes, they do, Pablo. You You are correct. Snakes do rule. Anywho, next question. <laughs> Valkyria? Valkyria. Valkyria. I do want to mention, this is one of the coolest names of a person I think I've ever read. I assume that that's, that's pronounced Valkyria. Valkyria, I like that. What a cool name. This all Val stays in. Yes, oh, Absolutely. I, Hi, I saw, I saw the vowel, but I was too interested in, in, <laughs> in the spelling. Uh, Valkyria asks, what is the best way people can help out this community? Volunteering, teaching, others? Uh, yeah, I, those are both great suggestions. Mm -hmm. uh, volunteering is great, as we mentioned before. If you can hop on with a university or a museum and put in some volunteer time. Teaching is fantastic. I mean, if if you want to help out with the paleo psychom folks like us, like the other podcasters, like our friends at Time Scavengers, I share the work. Yeah, uh, you know, like yeah, smash that subscribe key and tell your friends and and get involved with the conversations in social media. Uh, spread it to other people. Teaching others is great if if you can get involved with transferring the knowledge of the, the, the that's being put out there to other people. Uh, one of the things that I like to do, and obviously I'm already deeply embedded in the community, but I, 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 I find it fun to take, read a news article and then make a little post on social media where I write a single sentence about what that news article is about. Mm -hmm. Just cause it's that extra, that extra little, little branch for, you know, somebody new to, to, to hop in on there. Uh, there's also been a lot of Kickstarter type campaigns recently 
Uh, there was one very recently to rescue the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, yeah. which, which are looking for a new home. There have been uh, uh, call-outs in the wake of the fire in the Brazil Museum. So, I mean, keep an eye on social media. Talk to people. Definitely teaching. Absolutely teaching and volunteering. Yes. Like you, you named the best two. Yes. Certainly. Uh, excellent question. Awesome name. Next up, Hans asks. Hans has two questions. For he is a cheater. But that's okay. We're going to answer both. He's not the first one. <laughs> Hans asks, why are Chelonians the best animals? They're not. Next question. Because <laughs> uh, Han- they nourish many a crocodilian. Because <laughs> they're delicious. <laughs> Chelonians, Chelonians, by the way, are turtles for those who are not. Hans also add, he, he, he ad- ad- added the comment... Why do you keep pretending your poll is representative of objective facts? Is it because the truth scares you? Nope. It's because, well, now, I do not pretend that the poll is representative of objective facts. I will have you know. Because the truth scares I, I David. suspect that the poll is representative of a small sample size. Um, a very well-educated and insightful sample size that I think outweighs any size issues. Pablo said snakes rule. No one on this... <laughs> Q&A so far has mentioned the Crocs rule. Well, they already did that in the poll. <laughs> Hans also asks, <laughs> on a more serious note, and it's very serious, cladistics as the main classification method apparently had its breakthrough in the 1960s, but it spread unevenly across different disciplines. Are there any biological or paleontological disciplines today where cladistics still hasn't quite made it? Will? Really interesting question. I don't uh, know the answer to this question. I, I don't. I don't have a specific answer. I know there are definitely areas where it has not probably yet been fully utilized. Like the the best thing I could think of for this question. So cladistics, so everyone knows, is is the the way we think that you typically think of nowadays of organizing groups of organisms of what traits do they they share and how does that form out the tree of life? Right. More in episode ten. Yes. There are definitely groups that have yet to be parsed out and that are well known to need this. Uh, we call these wastebasket, wastebasket or, or trash bin groups. Uh, right, right. Where it's a it's a group that's ill defined or that has a very loose definition, and it has a bunch of animals in there that, if it were looked at more closely, would probably be broken up more uh colubridae right, and snakes right. is is the one that everyone always uses as the, one of the big examples for this yeah and that one has been gradually being sort of parsed out so you it get probably, that there are dinosaur groups a lot of yeah. basil groups are like mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. so there, there's definitely areas I, I can't think of a discipline where this hasn't yet no i don't know of one specifically but there are definitely parts where it's where, where there are definitely aspects of the the tree of life that are still making their way through the cladistic sieve. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I'm tempted to say that it's microbes. Yeah. Like protozoans, yeah. I'm sure, are a big mess. But I also, that might just be reflecting my lack of understanding. But I, I, I also those creatures. Have, have heard that they kind of break cladistics because they swap genes between individuals. So that is true. They do it's, that. It's hard to, like, what we consider a species in a invert or vertebrate is not the same as a species in a in a microbe so 
Yes. That is so true. that might be the discipline, but it also might not be able to be used there. I don't know. Yeah. Great cool. question. Cool question. You stumped us. <laughs> well done. You 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 get a, a, a point. You win. If you if you build up five we'll of those. We'll get you a, a something, turtle something. sticker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you stump us five times, you get a free, I don't know. <laughs> Our next question comes from Andrew, who asks, what are the current, quote, Bibles of paleontology course books that are used when studying the subject at university? This is a hard question to answer because it's been a while since I studied paleontology at mm-hmm. university. I, I the, actually can't answer because I never took a, a dinosaur course, yeah. <laughs> so I don't have one. The, the book that I used, which is sort of the, the one that gets a lot of uh, praise, is a book called Vertebrate Paleontology. I, I used, and it is on my shelf, I'm looking at it, uh, Benton, it's by Benton. The third edition is what I used. And it's a, a, a well-praised book. I think that a, that that your inner fish has been showing up yes, in a lot, lot That's a good of one. classrooms. Um, there were, I remember some of the, the really technical books, like statistics mm-hmm. books. But I, from my experience, I would say look up Vertebrate Paleontology by Benton. Is that what it's called? Hang on, I'm leaning over. Yes, it is called Vertebrate Paleontology. (laughs) Yes, that one. (laughs) Good question. Excellent question. Post that on Twitter. We'll we'll, we'll have to... That's the place you'll get the answer. That's the place to find it. (gasps) Flynn, the Aussie science turbo nerd, (laughs) asks... I'm adjusting my... my, I bumped my mic when I leaned away from the... Get all the behind-the-scenes nonsense in this episode. Yeah, Flynn says, getting to know the real us. If you could choose... Oh, Will, I'm glad that I get to ask you this question. I'm so glad. <laughs> if you could choose one fictional creature and insert it into the ecosystem, what would it be and where would you put it? What do you think the effects would be? That's such a good question. And I, believe it or not, have given thought to this before you ever asked it. Um, you? <laughs> so there's two there's two fictional creatures that I'm always most curious how they would actually fit. One's a much more ridiculous is gremlins. Uh, just <laughs> I picture them like like ship rats that just would would be ubiquitous. Would immediately become ubiquitous just across no. eating grains, spreading disease. Yeah. But they don't actually follow like a, a real biological rule set. That's they're ma- they're magic creatures. I mean, yeah. they're, it's a it's a magic mystic ancient Chinese organism of some sort. But the one that I think of the most uh, and have thought this through is uh, graboids from Tremors. Ooh, I because in the movies they work movie monster style, but they have a life cycle like they go through the entire movie series goes through the entire reproductive life cycle of a graboid you know each movie introducing a new set step in the life cycle uh including the prequel that goes back to the western time so like every single one adds to the picture so you have the entire life cycle there the the only thing that would have to change is that they're not going to be chasing things down underground because you you're faster in air that's just that's just fact. Yeah. Also, they wouldn't be missing from the entire fossil record. Nope. But that'd be hard if, to do. If they were inserted, I would insert them into the Mongolian or Saharan desert. 
<laughs> Take that, old world. Where they can move through vast areas of loose sand. And I would picture them as more likely ambush predators. You know, you're not going to chase down something out there, but if you stake out a watering hole or an oasis, uh, yeah. you now have these long proboscis tongues like a chameleon to wait for animals to come as you just sit under the sand where it's nice and cool <laughs> in the hot desert sun and eat these animals that come to those food sources. I, I expect they would supplant whatever apex predators were out there. Oh, yeah. Because it doesn't seem like they're picky about what they eat. No, they, I so feel like they'd the Sahara, be... they're in the Sahara, they're going to eat all the lions. They, well, they become like the desert crocodile like of... of now they they are now dominating an area that didn't have water flow, but they're functioning in the same kind of you know capacity of anything that comes across their path. They're going to outweigh it. So what's going to really yeah. fight them off? Well, that'd be fun. That'd be so interesting for us I, in North America because we wouldn't have to worry about it. Well, and then you'd have the the if the lions were supplanted, then uh, screechers would. Uh, replace them as the roaming herds. Naturally. I have and, only seen the first Tremors. I don't know and what then, was talking about. And anymore. then I can't say the name of the third life stage, but the butt blasters. <laughs> we, try to, we try to keep it try to keep it clean here. On the then, podcast. Would then be able to travel so they would become country, potentially global wide. Uh, and Sounds the, great. Thanks, Flynn. <laughs> Look what you've done. <laughs> now we this got is, graboids this is why i shouldn't be giving grant money <laughs> <laughs> now next question comes from karen who asks can you discuss the selective forces that may have led to the pygmification of species such as mammutus uh exilus yeah exilus exilus thank you uh how common is it is this in the fossil record so Mammothus exilus, uh, for the listeners who don't know, is a pig, is the pygmy mammoth. Teeny tiny. Uh, basically, uh, they, so they lived in the Channel Islands of California. Effectively, this was a mammoth the size of a cow. Yeah. They were about a ton, you know, five, six feet tall, uh, tiny proboscideans. Uh, I mean, we talked actually about island dwarfism quite a bit in episode four. Yeah, one of our earliest episodes. It was way back, way back, right after we got off the prerequisite <laughs> first three episodes. Yeah, the selective forces that lead to pygmification tend to be, you know, when you get on an island, you're experiencing a limited space, limited resources in terms of food, uh, and because there's limited resources, a small body not only means that you don't need as much, which makes you better fit to survive potentially, but it also means you're avoiding competition. So, like, one elephant would not only struggle to find food on a small island, it would also, like, if you, ten elephants on an island would be ridiculous. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to have a breeding population worth of a large animal in that yes. small of a space. So, yeah, once you end up on an island, you tend to get dwarfism. And as far as commonality in the fossil record, there's a bunch of examples of this. We, mm -hmm. we talked, we've talked about dwarf dinosaurs in, in Romania. Uh, there is the arguably dwarf hominin in Indonesia, Homo floresiensis. Uh, there's, also, there's also a lot of island gigantism, 
in the fossil record, large island species. But yeah, no, there's all sorts of really fun uh, examples of dwarf island dwarfs in the fossil record. If you haven't already, check out episode four. We talked about a bunch of them. Yes, it's fun, fun topic. Joe asks, is there any lineage ye would not do an episode on? Say, for example, one with a really poor to non-existent fossil record or where the transitional forms are still unknown. For example, bats. I, I, I'd say no. There, there's nothing we wouldn't do an episode on. There might be some that might be trickier that we, we'd have to not pad for time, but figure out what else to discuss than just their fossil record if it's a, a very sparse one. But Yeah, we did that with the episode 37 and a half where yeah. I, I yeah. kind of was like, here are three bird topics that might not fit a whole episode, but we can easily combine them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I can't think of anything that we would just refuse to do a discussion about. Yeah. No, no, that, it's, that there's definitely, there are definitely topics we come across where we both ha- look at it and go, ugh, how, how are we going to fit, fit, fit that one to a, a episode format? Uh, but yeah. none that we just go, nope. Yeah, so, no. yeah, not that I can think of. We are both, as we've said before, we are both of the opinion that every individual species could be its own documentary. Yes. So we could do it. We could do it. It just might be very technical. <laughs> yeah, so, some might just be more difficult than others. And some are difficult because there's too much to talk about. So. Yes, that's why we did a dinosaur intro episode. Yep. Because it was just <laughs> like, whoo, here's a whole thing. That's why we did the evolution of whales instead of whales yep very different topics coming up next is from josh who asks what is one question you wish you knew the answer to or science knew the answer to good question this is one of those big questions uh the origin of life would be mine that's how how did life we have a lot of good hypotheses about how life could have gotten started on earth I, it, I, one of the, the two, I've always said the two questions that I hope, that I hope get answered in my lifetime are a good, solid, evidence-supported theory on how life on Earth got started, and the discovery, if it's out there, of the evidence of life on Mars. Yeah. Yep. Or, or anywhere, you know, or Europa or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. is there life elsewhere in the universe? And because I be, because I suspect the answer to that question is yes. Where is it? <laughs> and how does life get started? That was exactly, that, those are those are my two. That was exactly mine. I I I I had worded mine as what does the transition between inanimate molecules to organism look like? Mm-hmm. Like I it yeah origin of life. That's pretty much the big one. Good question, Josh. Really Listeners, good question. what's the one answer you wish that you or science knew the answer to? And what's the what's the answer to our question? And what's uh, the answer? <laughs> yeah, and, and tell us the answer to our question. Let us know in the comments below. Jonathan asks, how much and what geology does a prospective paleontologist need to know? I imagine it's probably a sliding scale depending on how much fieldwork is done. Hey, Will, tell us about your geology experience. The amount of geology, the minimum amount of geology you need to know is none. (laughs) (laughs) You should know some. You should. And if if you want to be sort of broadly mm well-rounded, it's good to know some. 
And so it definitely helps. And if you like, if you're able to get into geo paleo focused courses before grad school, you'll almost absolutely be required to take something geology based. Uh, But if your school doesn't have that, which mine did not, mine had no geology courses. I didn't have an option for that in my tiny, tiny North Georgia college. Uh, it was all biology for me. So it was all just organism, you know, animal based, uh, which I uh, did not hinder me. It just meant that there definitely were things I was not able to participate as much in. You know, I didn't instinctually know what different rocks meant. So it's good to have some. It's in, if you're going into research on, uh, on fox and, oh, not fox fossils and fossil localities you'll absolutely need some but uh some paleontologists are sedimentologists and yeah all geology all the time yeah so it's definitely a sliding scale you can go into it without any but it's not the norm i would say it's not necessarily dependent on how much field work you're doing but it it does depend on the kind of work Mm -hmm. that you're doing uh, if you're running a field site, then yeah, it's good to have some, but it, it will more depend on what kind of research you're doing, what organisms you're looking at, what kind of questions you're asking. Well, it's, for instance, had I continued into research, my research would have focused on fossils already identified and dated by others. You know, I wouldn't have been aging things use, you know, using the geology. My f- research would have focused on growth series, growth rates, adapt, you know, physical characteristics that you see and and anatomy-based things. So that that would have been all my research, which is what I'm interested in, but I would have been waiting for other people who have already done the geo stuff. I don't think I've ever done any geological analysis in any of my publications. That w- it's helpful to know the base the, you know, the geology behind it, but I haven't yes. if I had gone in with zero understanding of geology, I don't think my publications my particular research would have changed much. Yeah. Not saying that's the ideal place to be, but that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not, we're not, we're not get disparaging away it. Do, geology yeah, yeah. knowledge. Do as we say. <laughs> Next question from Ed is, could the temporal isolation of periodic cicada broods lead to speciation? I love this question for <laughs> right? two reasons. Number one, what a cool thought that, so periodic cicadas for anybody who's unfamiliar because I think it's a North American thing. I'm pretty sure it's a North American I so. thing. Uh, periodic cicadas. Cicadas are locust-like bugs. Periodic cicadas are several species of cicada that go dormant for 13 or 17 years. Yep. And then emerge in these huge swarms, take over the country for a little bit, do their, their business time, and then go back dormant. I'll see you again in a decade and a half. Uh, Ed is asking, could the temporal isolation refers to things being active at different times, mm-hmm. right? Plants, flowers that bloom in the spring cannot mate with flowers that bloom in the fall or that at least are doing their pollination. Yeah. Uh, the second reason I love that Ed asked this question is because it le- led me to look it up. And the <laughs> answer to this question is fascinating because <laughs> the answer is, yeah, it it has so you would think there are seven species. I think it's seven. Some There are several species of cicada, periodic cicadas. Three are 17-year cicadas and four are 13-year cicadas. The 17-year cicadas live to the north. 
the 14 year cicadas or the 13 year cicadas live further south you would think that the 17 year cicadas were all related and the 13 year cicadas were all related and that is not the case there was a study that came out a while back that showed that the split has happened several times at least three times wow that the cicadas the groups have split into a northern group that took on the 17-year cycle and a southern group that took on the 13-year cycle. Which is what fascinating. And one of the reasons it is suggested that they might have done that is... So if 17-year cicadas showed up... 17 and 13 are both prime numbers, which means that they're offset from other natural cycles, which mm-hmm. is why it makes them unpredictable. Well, not unpredictable. Yeah, sort of not synced up with other makes things. Makes them weird. Makes some weird prime numbers are weird. But if you already have 17 year cicadas in the north and you're a new species coming in, syncing up with the 17 year cycle means you can be part of that same. Uh, there's a there's a term for this for avoiding predation by just yeah having yeah. a billion of you. The, the safety and numbers mentality is is what that's so with. i think it's it's something i forget what it's called but it, it's like you satiate the predators yeah. <laughs> like that's how you you survive you, pro- you, you provide so much food they <laughs> more food than they can possibly eat uh that if you're a new species moving in if you're a 13 year cicada when all the other cicadas are 17 years you're on your own mm-hmm. so if you sync up you get to benefit from the same big bust so yes, the temporal isolation has absolutely helped to to speciate uh, in cicadas. It's so cool. That's so that's so cool. It oh, it's fantastic. Go uh, look. Uh, go to Wikipedia and look up periodic cicadas. There is a section called evolution that has a description of this study and then a, a pretty decent description of the study and then links to the study itself, which you can read in its entirety. Nice. Check it out. It's awesome. Francis from Australia says this is our second Aussie which science communication podcasts do you listen to slash would recommend cool I actually I I listen to very few podcasts outside of a a select few so I don't have like a a long list that I can give you a really good recommendation on because I've listened to a few but not all Uh, but there's there's definitely a few of the, the big ones that I've given a listen to um, Discovering Darwin. Yeah. Which, which we I've listened to a few episodes of that, and that one's a lot of fun. And so I really like that one. The Tetrapod Zoology podcast is... Yeah, with Darren and John. Yep, that's a fun one. Um, and th- there's a list of others that I have waiting to get to, but I, I have not actually gotten to, so I can only recommend them by reputation. So I, I don't actually have a personal voice to give. I am the opposite. I have pulled up my phone and I have my big <laughs> list of SciCom podcast. Ahem. Here's a few for you. Um, first, A Touch of Grey. Yes, Our friends Sean and Brian true. talk about behind the scenes of the Grey Fossil site. Astronomy Cast. It was a big influence on this podcast when Will and I were planning it out. Uh, I've recently come to love Gravity Assist, which is a NASA podcast. The first several episodes were a trip through the solar system. In Defense of Plants is a cool podcast that I've only listened to a little bit, but I really appreciate what they're doing, which is (laughs) spotlighting plants. 
Origin Stories is one of my favorite podcasts. It is the Leaky Foundation podcast all about becoming human. <gasps> Paleo After Dark and Paleocast and Pastime are other paleontology podcasts. The first Paleo After Dark is a bit NSFW. Uh, they're, they're very sweary and drinky. So if you're into that, go for it. But if you're in seventh grade, don't listen. Uh, or at least don't tell your parents that you heard about it from us. <laughs> what else do I have? Science, sort of, which we've been on. Listen to that episode. Uh, Squamates is a new podcast that is... Oh, it right. get, gets uh, It's a bit more technical, and it's all very herpetology, but it's great. Um, I'm also a huge fan, more recently, of This Podcast Will Kill You, which is by two... Uh, not, I don't think they're doctors yet. I think they're both still PhD students, but I could be behind the times. Uh, uh, epidemiologists talking about diseases. So all of those and more. <laughs> those are the ones that I see in front of me right now. So check well, those out. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Our next three questions... Oh, my goodness. Are from Nick, a.k.a. Ya Boy Jurassic. Uh, that's what it says in parentheses. <laughs> it says three questions, one for each of you and then one for both. So Cool. One first for, I'll read the first one. Hang you on. read the this first one. I was you. about to say, you read the first one. This is for you. To Will, has your career been influenced by the man, the myth, the legend that was Steve Irwin? What impact, if any, did he have on your focus on crocodilians? Good question. Absolutely, he had an impact. Uh, he, he, I loved watching Steve Irwin's shows and documentaries. Uh, it, and he was uh, influential as he was to many people who now love and are interested in animals. He was not the reason I became interested in crocodilians. Uh, I can't actually tell you for sure when that was, very much like, Saying I want to be a paleontologist, I've always liked alligators and crocodiles. My first birthday cake was a red alligator cake, uh, <laughs> which that's and the end it started. Which I I don't want to say that's definitely what it was, but but I've always remembered that cake because my mom showed me a picture of it when I was older, and I still remember it very clearly. And she had forgotten that was my <laughs> first birthday, uh, <laughs> so. I've always loved them, but getting to see the way he worked with them and he talked about them, and I will always remember one key series that he did where he had to um, move a lot of the big saltwater crocodiles around the Australia Zoo to make room for some that had outgrown, you know, some, some juveniles that had outgrown one of their enclosures that they were in. So they had to be moved to a new one, and to make space for them, they had to kind of hopscotch, you know, move everyone down the line by one habitat or so. And so it was like an hour special of them just moving crocs and like going and introducing wow. you to each individual croc. I still remember the name of a number names of a number of the crocs that he moved and the stories he would tell where he's like, this is where this croc came from. This is its personality. This is how you have to work with it differently and all these different things. So like that was very vivid in my memory. And that that was definitely probably one of the first times I started looking at those animals as dynamic nuanced creatures so it, he definitely influenced me and he he's part of the reason that i i love australia so much that their <laughs> environment and animals are fascinating but it definitely spoke to me so absolutely he had an effect and and he Very was awesome cool. good question next question to you david 
Yes. To David, if you couldn't study snakes or dinosaurs, what other extinct fauna would you be interested in studying? And I'll go ahead and mm. let you answer that part because we have a, a, a another question that was similar in line with this that we can yeah. follow I'll it up I'll ask the with. next one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll trade back go. and forth. <laughs> um, if I couldn't study snakes or dinosaurs, this jerk has preempted. <laughs> uh, I, probably either marine reptiles. So like it feels a little cheating to say lizards because, eh, but lizards, <laughs> but mosasaurs or plesiosaurs or ichthyosaurs are just super cool or pterosaurs. Yeah, that's a good one. Because I like reptiles and I like ridiculously derived organisms. You like weird I stuff. like, I like organisms that have done really wonky things that, that, that evolved to fly or evolved to live back in the ocean. <laughs> uh, so yeah, probably mosasaurs or pterosaurs would be my first next choices. And then Ian, another person had asked a similar question. Uh, so you got my answer, but will, if you didn't study crocodilians, what would your second choice be? That's a really, that is, that's a really good question. Um, dinosaurs were definitely on the radar. Uh, yeah. But since you didn't get to use that, to be fair, <laughs> uh, if, I, if it wasn't crocs or dinosaurs, um, it, it's going to sound very similar, but uh, lizards would definitely be on the list. But I, I want to study uh, varanids, monitor lizards, guanas. Good choice. Th- those would probably be my, my next. Komodo dragons are, are very close to under the ranking of crocs when it comes to my favorite favorite animals uh and so that that probably be the way i'd go that they, they've got steak knife teeth and they're big and some in some areas they're still dominant land predators so yeah that's probably the one i'd go with uh outside of those i don't i don't know that there's another group that would qualify so i don't know yeah interesting fortunately yes. not the world we live in yes <laughs> now, Nick's final question to both. What do you believe are the biggest challenges in SciComm today, and how can science communicators work to overcome them? That's well, that's question. a big question. Mm-hmm. Ah, the biggest challenges in SciComm today. I, well, I feel like one of, at least one of the biggest challenges, two of the biggest challenges. Uh, one of them is just the, the, the alienation of scientists mm-hmm. that, there are these uh, stereotypes of what a scientist is like, and there are a lot of great science communicators and scientists out there trying to sort of portray what scientists are actually like. It's one of the reasons we started this podcast is like, hey, we're scientists. Here's us just talking to you. And then the other one is just how I <laughs> the Internet. Yeah. Like there's just so much misinformation out there. A lot of it spreads through cultural osmosis. Some of it is spread intentionally by particular people who thrive among misinformation. And I won't go further than that because we don't make political comments on our podcast. (laughs) But I think that there's just so much contention around a lot of scientific topics that it, it makes it very difficult to receive good information. And finding new ways to overcome that is one of the biggest challenges in SciComm. I think scientists talking directly to, to people, I think that there's a lot of 
wonderful outlets that that showcase scientific work being done. So documentaries and, and YouTube channels are great that, that that bring you into the lab. I think transparency, yeah, is the big way to get around that and just say, hey, this isn't you know a message that was written on a paper airplane and thrown out of the ivory tower at you. Here, come on in. Uh, a lot of museums, the Gray Site has w- windows into the labs. So you walk into the museum and it's not like, oh, well, they say these bones were found here. They're no, you can walk up somewhere. Yeah, in the, in the warehouse. You walk upstairs, you look through the window and you can see it. I think that being as upfront and honest about the procedures of science is, is one of the best ways to carve through uh, the misinformation. So. I'd agree. I'd agree with all of that. Uh, I do have one one additional thing that is a a major hurdle to overcome in SciComm. That is a much uh, it's a societal, maybe even just human thing. Most cultures and most mentalities don't like to not deal in absolutes, mm. which is the basis of most good science. Is that uncertainty? There is not. There are not absolutes 99% of the time it is uncertainty things are going to change as we learn more right now what we are talking about is the current best hypothesis in form of the theory but there's always the chance that something we learn later on will shift it or rewrite it or undo it so that amount of uncertainty or uh, uh, unreliable solid absolutes makes a lot of people uncomfortable uh it's it's where that scientists are categorizing things yeah it's it's where the whole concept of scientists are just making it up you know or that we we just keep changing our minds comes from is that people people would prefer many people not all people but many people would prefer to learn things the way they are as the kid and have that stay the truth until they die uh, I think that's human nature. We don't, you know, I it's think easier is. to just learn a thing, remember it. Yes. And I think transparency goes towards that. Also, because I know we know Nick, Nick, not personally, yes. but Nick has corresponded with us a lot. I know, Nick, that you are a science writer mm-hmm. uh, and a good one. <laughs> uh, watch your, and this isn't you, not you specifically, but watch your headlines. Yeah. Clickbait. I think that, I think sensationalism and, and there are certain phrases that are commonly used that really do give the wrong impression. Like when we talk about the uncertain scientists are baffled by blah yeah. or rewriting the textbooks. Oh, I hate yeah. the phrase rewriting the textbooks, like being scientists upfront now about think. Yeah, yeah. What we do understand and how it adjusts, how it changes over time is, is so, good. There's, there's a whole lot more conversation. Oh, yeah. And so, some of this. these, there are no simple answers on how to get around them. It just may be time and effort. So, Indeed. <gasps> Great question, Nick. Our next question comes from Stephanie. We have not been in the habit of ma- making, of, of saying last names uh, as we've gone through here. Mostly because I don't like people knowing my last name. That's weird. I don't want to be announced <laughs> on the podcast. Maybe I'm weird. But <laughs> Stephanie does have a, a very odd last name and handily included a pronunciation guide, which yes. is very appreciated. Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> uh, also mentioned that we're a great break from all the murder you listen to. I like everything that Stephanie wrote. Yes, no, that was a fantastic line. 
including the phrasing of this question. <laughs> well, if you could Jurassic Park one animal, <laughs> which one would it be? <laughs> I love it. I, 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 I had to think it. Sinosuchus. Ah, uh, which, which one's Sinosuchus? Simosuchus? Yeah, Simosuchus. The pug-faced? Simosuchus is the pug-faced, herbivorous, small dog-sized, armored, terrestrial, crocodilian ancestor. Uh, or yeah. relative. Uh, <laughs> episode that, 2. And also episode 40, right? Didn't we? Wasn't that Madagascar? So. I believe, yes, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, it was. Um, That one, because... They're not going to go on a rampage, um, and <laughs> yeah. I, I want it. I want it in my house. I want it as a pet. <laughs> I'll feed it salads. My answer is Deinonychus. Absolutely Deinonychus. I don't even care. Deinonychus. <laughs> Our next question comes from Joel, who has uh, a two-parter. This is uh, the future elementary school teacher that we got the first of a three-parter from earlier. Yes. <laughs> the first part, or the second part, is what resources would you recommend for teaching paleontology to elementary students? I would say, I actually did take some notes here. Um, I have three recommendations. One is uh, the American Museum of Natural History has a page that is paleo for kids, and they have like flash games and cool stuff. They have a pterosaurs card game that I printed out a while back and have not played yet. Nice. The Paleontological Society website has a lot of resources, including the Paleo Portal, which has a lot of activities and things. And then our friends over at Time Scavengers, uh, Adrian and Jen, have a list of educational resources, which I believe includes both of those. So go to the Time Scavengers website and look at their big, huge list of fantastic educational resources. You will find a lot of great stuff there. And the, the good th question. third part yes. is what time period do you most wish we would find a major new finding from? Ah, uh, <laughs> so I thought about this for a while and then I realized that there is only one Solid answer, like a, a, a good answer. Uh, the Hadian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because any major discovery in the Hadian is going to be a huge discovery from the beginnings of the Earth. And it would it will any any major new discovery would have to tell us about either the origins of our planet or the origins of life on our planet. And I want to know about that. I'd agree with that. That's a good one. Yeah. Good question. Our next question comes from David. Do you see genetics playing a large part in paleontology as the technology advances? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, just based on the trends of similar type studies, I'd say absolutely. Oh, yeah. How? I don't, I, I can't quite give an answer on that. Uh, my assumption is a, a big part of what will start helping is actually sequencing more modern genomes uh yes as we better understand because because there's a whole bunch of like who's related to who questions that if we just sequence the genome would probably be cleared up very quickly but it is not fast nor cheap to sequence a genome necessarily so uh it's not something that will happen overnight but if we have a better understanding of the modern animals relationships it will almost absolutely uh uh 
ripple into the paleo aspect of it. Yes, yes, I agree with that. I also think our our fossil sequencing technologies will get better, and so yes. we'll be able to do do more with ancient DNA. In fact, our my, our friend Leah commented to me once that she said she thinks that we are only still figuring out how to do ancient DNA. I'm sh- I I would not at all be surprised. I can't say that I I'm sure it will happen, but I'd be very surprised if it didn't happen to some aspect that we we discover a thing we've been overlooking because we had not previously had the technology to see it, which has already happened numerous, numerous times. Oh, yeah. And genetics is already a major part of paleo, so yes. absolutely it will continue in that trend. For sure. Next question from Samuel is, what can we infer about intelligence in the various groups of non-avian dinosaurs? Would we expect some groups to be more comparable to modern birds in this regard and others less so? Or is intelligence something too abstract to be estimated from fossil evidence? Good question. Extremely well-worded. It is. Uh, the, the, the short answer that I have to give is I think intelligence is something too abstract to be estimated from living organisms. Yep. Uh, we're really bad at defining what intelligence is. Uh, so certainly nothing definitive from fossils. I think that it's certainly reasonable to expect dinosaurs to have had to be comparable to modern birds, in particularly in the sense that modern birds are very variable. Mm-hmm. That some birds are do show you know what we categorize as very intelligent behaviors, problem solving, and 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 forward thinking. It wouldn't surprise me at all if those kinds of things were yet another thing that showed up in dinosaurs before true birds evolved but also we keep learning different ways that turtles and lizards and Mm -hmm. fish there's i was just watching blue planet 2 go watch blue planet 2 and watching a fish smashing a clam against a a coral to break it open i who what can we possibly say about intelligence yeah i mean Uh, who knew we could train turtles and and crocs and certain lizards yeah, turtles you know, do like mouse mazes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, our turtles are some of the most easily and best behaved trained animals when it comes to feeding time out of all the animals in the aquarium because they are always willing to eat. So I, I don't think that we have a good handle on how to relate physical attributes, which is mostly what you're going to get in fossils, mm-hmm. to intelligence. Mm-mm. So, yes is the answer to your question. <laughs> it's a fascinating discussion, but I, the short answer is yes. Yeah, we definitely will get in, <laughs> in inferences of things like probably had a really good sense of smell or things like that from the shape of brain cases, but w- would it be good at solving puzzles? And... Yeah, who knows? Our next question is two questions. This is another one where two people asked a very similar question about paleo news. Derek asks, Derek, what was your favorite paleontological discovery of 2018? Which discovery from the past year changed our understanding of the prehistoric world the most? And the other one is from Stephen. I will shout this person out. This is Stephen Ray Morris, who is a fellow podcaster. Woo-hoo. What do you feel was the biggest paleontology-related piece of news in 2018? Will? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, I'm sure that you'd get a different answer if you asked, you know, if you polled all the, the paleo researchers, you'd get almost a different answer from each one, depending on what they studied. Uh, so it's going to affect things differently. But 
The one that stood out in my mind, uh, and I had to check back to make sure I had dates right for different news as I was thinking of, but was uh, the one identifying Dickinsonia, the Ediacaran biota fossil, as a early and currently earliest animal. Yeah, I thought of that one too. That's the one I would have to go with just because not only does that identify a member of a previously almost completely mysterious group, but it also redefines and pushes back the the date of when animals arose in the fossil record. So it it yeah, that's a pretty cool finding. Might not be paradigm shifting, but it it really is a big deal. I did look back over the news we've talked about this year. And a couple of my favorites, which might not be like the biggest game changers, but this is still worst as of this recording. We're still two weeks out from when all the this year in paleontology news articles are going to start dropping. Uh, So we didn't have those to cheat off of. Right. Um, All the new things in Amber have been really cool, including the baby snake. And I think my favorite one of my favorite pieces of news was the hybrid uh, Denisovan Neanderthal hybrid person that was so cool (laughs) that one was pretty amazing so there's there are a lot we'll we'll probably have different answers when the the actual end of the month comes right be able to look back (laughs) it'll be one that we somehow missed and we're like oh well that is important Uh, (laughs) (laughs) our next question is from (laughs) (laughs) slam jambert the slam jam man with the slam jam plan who asks which would be cooler, snake-like croc descendants or croc-like snake descendants? This is a good question. <laughs> I di- so so crocs evolving to be more like snakes, or snakes evolving to be more like crocs. I think that a croc evolving to be more like a snake would be following a a, a pretty classic. Like lizards have done that a lot. They'd be we- they'd be like big. It'd be like a glass lizard mixed with a mosasaur. Yeah, basically. Like this I mean, big armored tube. And and it's not too unreasonable because if they were, you know, if it would be marine or fully aquatic, you know, sort of thing. Like, I mean, let's be honest. Their legs already are not their defining feature. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, I was telling people just today at the aquarium, it's, it is ridiculously common to find an old, healed croc or gator missing one if not more limbs or portions of limbs that has still been surviving and eating because as long as their tail and mouth work and they have nubbins to like keep themselves upright when they're on land then yeah they're pretty much fine like now a croc like snake descendant a snake evolving to be more like a croc Hmm. i mean i imagine that would involve a very elongated face, mm-hmm. and I, I picture right, one of those shoreline yeah. ambush. Pre- that I don't know what that would look like, but I want to see it. It's like it, it's something focusing more on the bite to instead of. Yeah, it would take a really crazy modification of that skull. Yeah, and like I, snake I, skulls are not don't work that mm-hmm. way. And I, I don't know. Its eyes would be like halfway up its face or something, and its body would have to be 
huge. It'd be like a viper body where it's sort mm-hmm. of thick. So like, as for which one's cooler, which one am I more interested to see? Probably the croc-like snake because I have no clue. Agreed. I want to uh, see that. <laughs> which one would which one would make a better movie monster? Probably the snake-like croc because that's yes. that that's how you're gonna get your it's your a sea serpent. Yeah, that's a sea serpent. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's how you get your movie monster snake that's biting people in half. <laughs> yep. Cool question once again, artists. Do us Por- por qué, por qué no los dos. I put your hands <laughs> together, my friend. <laughs> Our next question comes from Rebecca. Will you be coming back to DragonCon next year? Yes. Yes, we sure will. Absolutely. <laughs> Rebecca was one of the people in the overflow room. All right. With us in the at, at DragonCon this year. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. It's good. It's good talking. So you, that which means I think, and, and I'm not entirely sure. That might mean that Rebecca is the only person on this list whom we have both met in person. I think that, yeah, that's, yeah. I think that, I think that is the case. At least so, real world. Yeah, we, real we've, world we've Skyped yeah. with, but yeah, real world, yeah. I, IRL, so cool. IRL, thanks, Rebecca. And good absolutely, to, yeah, it, it, it would you. take something crazy to stop us from coming back. To- that is the plan. We got, we got panel ideas. We've been talking to some of the DragonCon folks. Keep an eye out for us. It's going to be big. <laughs> Next question from Jim, uh, zookeeper and paleontology fan. Cool. Cool. What characteristics of modern animals who likely n- who will not likely not survive fossilization and potentially be missed by future paleontologists? Uh, example, lion's mane, peacock feathers, uh, so on and so forth. Lots of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, modern animal, we can get feathers and we can get evidence of, of hair and stuff. Um, but they're unlikely. Internal organs are very unlikely to survive from modern animals and from fossil. These are things that we don't know a lot about fossil animals. Behavior is very difficult to interpret. So as far as modern animal, like what are some cool things about modern animals that might not survive? Um, things like, I, I don't know if there are any physical attributes that would tell you about poison. Yeah. Like poison dart frogs and, and bufo, the, the, the parotid glands. Mm-hmm. I don't, like a lot of cool behaviors would not fossilize. But mostly what I'm, the thing that, that bugs me the most is entire organisms that either don't have very fossilizable bodies, like jellyfish and all the cool... Once again, go watch Blue Planet 2. Most of those animals, like in the coral reefs and stuff. And things that live in, like, mountains, where you just don't get a lot of deposition up there, Mm -hmm. or forests where you don't get a lot of, of deposition in the dense forest. So, like, mountain goats... I, we might never find fossils of mountain goats. Yeah, in, in like in the in the distant future, they might just not be preserving. So there are all sorts of characteristics and entire organisms just missing. A couple of the first things that popped into my mind were uh, things like rhino horn, and oh yeah, 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 that's true. That's made out of uh, cuticle, not bone. Yeah, that's keratin. And so that that material, hair and fingernail, will 
breakdown. Um, then also things like elephant trunks that. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. If if we didn't have modern day, now we have frozen mammoths that would have given, but like if we didn't have modern day elephants and rhinos, would we be putting horns on woolly rhinos and yep. stuff like that? If you I want to say coloration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a while back. Uh, if you want good examples of this, uh, All Yesterdays has whole sections where yep. it talks about how future paleontologists might interpret our animals due to the things that don't fossilize. So they have actually whole artworks yeah. worked up. Check that out. Next question comes from Luke. If you could have been present at any fossil find from history, which would it be? What a cool question. That's a neat one. I'm sure there are, there are tons of potential answers for this. The first one that came to my mind that, that I, I first think of that would just be interesting uh, and this might sound, sound weird, but one of the first times a sauropod was discovered, just yeah. to see how people try to interpret when first faced with something that big with yeah. legs, you know, <laughs> I think that would have been fascinating just to watch how how does one's mind cope with something that that large that you didn't know existed before that moment. I'm tempted to get cheeky with it. And and refer back to episode 49 and say that it would have been great to have been present at the discovery of Piltdown Man or Archaeoraptor <laughs> and just cut those off at the head. <laughs> oh, well. That, that would have helped. Next question from Brooke. What paleo creature or group of creatures would you choose as your D&D character's mount, wild shape or animal companion? Brooke. You glorious nerd. It's like you looked into our brains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a great question. So, mount being the creature you ride, animal companion being your animal companion, or wild shape uh, if you are a druid, or the thing that Will is in yeah. our campaign. Yeah. And you can transform into an animal. What group of creatures? Oh, man. This is a, this is a very good question. I think... I mean, I the, the the one that I would want to do, and I thought about creating this character like in my head. I want a character whose animal companion is a Deinonychus. Yep, that's the one. Her I name. Was... Her name would be Clover. <laughs> just because it'd be a cool, like a beast companion. Yeah, uh, which you could do now. Actually, Deinonychus is in the book these days mm -hmm. for Five E. I think I'd go with Deinonychus for animal companion, and also possibly for wild shape because. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, I used to I had this this game I used to play where I would pretend that there was this arena like Hunger Games style arena, um, but instead of you being out there, you would get in a robot that was a dinosaur, <laughs> and then you would have to act like that dinosaur and survive. I, and I always was Deinonychus, and we would hunt in packs. It was really cool. I'm a dork. <laughs> that I think is my I think that's my choice. That's I have I have to answer this one too because I also have thoughts. Uh, for for animal companion, absolutely Dionicus. Yes, it's good, be, yeah, it's a good choice. That's that's a, a an attack dog that but better. Uh, for wild attack shape, dog with hands with hands. Yep. I, for wild shape, I'd want to go with something big, so like an allosaur or something like that would be really cool. Yeah. Like, also in the five e book. Yes, it is. Uh, for a mount ter terrestrial crocodile. <laughs> I, I want, I want, I want a hoofed croc. 
uh <laughs> so so the pristy champions one of those that yeah, yeah i'll take one That'd of those be pretty good <laughs> <laughs> good question very nice once again artists <clears throat> please devin asks this isn't even a question this is a this is a demand this is an instruction Devin Devin says, recommend one book, nonfiction. (laughs) You already did. (laughs) I did. This is actually true. One book, nonfiction. uh, I mean, we mentioned Your Inner Fish, which is... Yeah, that's the one I was going to go back to. That's a really good one. But if we're going outside of Paleo, I haven't actually read it yet. I still need to. Um, The the, uh, Soul of an Octopus is... Oh. All about uh, is written by caretakers who have worked with uh, octopus, you know, various oct- uh, octopuses, which is the correct way to say it, unfortunately. Octopodes. Uh, and talking about the different experiences and personalities and things, and it's that's that's one of my favorite modern groups. It's my favorite marine group. So that that one, I would absolutely take the, take a look at that one because it's supposed to be amazing. Nice. Yeah, I would say your inner fish. All yesterdays are great. Outside yes. of paleo, one of the one book that I find myself recommending all the time is a book by Franz De Waal called Chimpanzee Politics. Oh, right. Which is follows the 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 inner workings of this troop of chimps in a zoo in the Netherlands, and it's fascinating. <laughs> so there you go. There are some books. Cool. All right. Ryan asks, was every genus at one point a species? Was every family at one point a genus, and so on? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that makes that, that's that's a way to because you think about it now, right? You pick like something like lions and tigers are are sister species, but give them, uh, you know, a number of millions of years, and if lions keep giving rise to more and more populations of descendants, and tigers keep giving rise to more and more populations of descendants eventually you'll end up with several potentially with a number of tiger descendant species and a number of lion descendant species and they will have diverged enough that a biologist would say yeah we'll call those different genera because they are two distinct groups that are fairly different from each other and then if that kept going you could see how those groups sort of expand and expand so yes pretty much that's a that's a functional way to think about it that as lineages go on, they will progress from species to genus to family and so on. Mm-hmm. Michael asks, what extinct animal would you be terrified to encounter in real life? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I mean, if we're all being honest, even if they're not like the creepy ones, I, any large theropod. Yeah, that that would be pretty terrifying. It, that'd be a pretty bad place to be. That that would be just awful to be on the receiving end of any of those. But um, as for the one that like just in my own head, the thought is the most uncomfortable to be like in a room with it. Uh, this is kind of going back and I, I didn't expect it when I first thought of it. Uh, terror birds. Ooh, I, I just, still theropods. Yeah, it's still, th- but like, but yeah, but just, I don't know. Just something about that beak. It just is un pleasant and you know they would they, they might move their heads around like pigeons mm-hmm. and it would just be that weird Nuh. yeah i just yeah that that's that's the one i think my answer to this question once again getting a bit cheeky <laughs> <laughs> if if i may 
Homo erectus. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. That's a good because one. Because humans are terrifying and personal and do not have a very good track record of interacting with other cultures. Well, so, I mean... <laughs> to think of Homo erectus encountering modern Homo sapiens, like, ugh, like chimps, but with tools and... That's exactly and, what I was going to say. Is it, 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 it would be very similar to being in the room with a chimpanzee, but it could stand up and look at you and... Yeah. Mm, no. No, that's... Yep, That's there unnerving. Take that, ancestors. <laughs> Thanks for the nightmares. <laughs> I'm glad you got this one. Lydia asks our next <laughs> question. What is your favorite paleo-related word or phrase, like Lagerstaten? Well, Lagerstaten's a great... That's a good one. That's a great choice. Lagerstaten is a, is a really good word. I, You know, the first thing that keeps coming to my mind is the phrase that I learned in episode 42. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. To describe the spinal shape of ichthyovenator, which was as a dorsosacral, nope, which was as a sinusoidal dorsosacral sail. Yep. Which yep. is fantastic. I also really like the word phylogeny. Yeah. I don't know what it is, about. I just, I, just, I like the word phylogeny. I also like word phrases that have a particular meaning that, that it gets condensed into a, like, phylogenetic bracketing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is a cool. I like that. There's a phrase for that. That is a. That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, the I one know. One that Will, I, I know. Will is a is a fan of the phrase "trophic cascade." There you go. Is that the that, one you were going to say? That was it. Absolutely. That's my. <laughs> it's favorite. a good. It's a good it's, one. Well, it's a pretty word. Like, it's. Yeah. Like, I feel like if you were to if you were to make a painting of that word, it'd be very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Our final question. There's more to talk about, but this is the final official question. <laughs> Comes from Nick, who who describes himself as a shipwrecked Kiwi in Australia. <laughs> a th- another Australian. In evolutionary terms, in your opinion, what is the most successful strategy for any given species? Innovation slash specialization or sheer numbers of a species? Good question. And Indeed. One that does not have one answer you know it, it's as we were saying about the the fitness of humans and domesticated animals depends on what scenario you're looking at but if we're looking at like the grand average animals that are generalists and breed in large numbers very quickly tend to be the ones we see come back and again and again as the survivors yeah. as the ones who you know are are the pioneers of ecosystems and environments and often the ones that are also in invaders of ecosystems and environments so that that it it's hard to fight that because it's like fighting a tide like we're going to breed well, so quickly tend to struggle mm-hmm. as a specialist it's hard for anyone to knock you out of your your niche but if your niche fluctuates at all then then you're, you're out of luck so yeah unless you specialize in something that then is super successful mm-hmm. like tetrapods like you yes developed legs which then become you kind of transfer from one to the other yep you started yeah. out specialized but it works so now you're super diverse and, and exploding so yeah there's definitely aspects to both that could be argued but i mean yeah the 
the rats, the insects, you know, the the toads and frogs. It's kind of hard to beat those when you're having your broods in the <laughs> dozens, hundreds, when thousands. When you're having your plagues. Yes. So, yeah, yeah that that's pretty effective. Now, that's all the official questions. We did yeah. have uh, three people <laughs> make respond but not actually make ask questions and i wanted to address them yes one of them was karen one of our patrons uh a lot of these people are our patrons by the way cheryl lydia uh samuel there's a lot of patrons on here thank you to all our patrons uh karen's another one of our patrons who basically just told us we're doing a good job provided some feedback thanks karen thank you good to hear from you an anonymous responder also gave some feedback some critical feedback, which is dun, great. Dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, and I, and, and, and I, this person did make a note about wanting to comment anonymously so that they could, you know, express they like the podcast, but here's a, a concern. And I, this is a great opportunity to just let you all know that we like feedback. Yeah, uh, we're okay Please with don't it. ever feel uh, like you have to hide or feel ashamed. If you want to be anonymous, that's awesome. That's on yes. you. Go for it. But, I, you know, if... We we are totally happy to receive feedback, positive and negative. Let us know how we're doing. Tell us what you think. Uh, like science, we are self-correcting. Yeah, we're we're not going to get angry or or you know lash out at critical feedback. We're, you know we're we're going to take it under advisement and add it to our our data set of what we're hearing and what we're we're seeing. So please please feel free. Indeed. And then finally, there was a third person, another anonymous who put forth a comment about human chromosome evolution, uh, which is a really cool topic. So I wanted, to, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about it because it's really neat. Now, I'm not going to read this person's whole comment because it's a long description of a, a their sort of musings mm -hmm. a bit on the subject, uh, some technical pieces and also partially self-advertisement. But the general gist is... A comment on how humans ended up with their unique chromosome number. So, very famously, the other great apes all have 48 chromosomes in 24 pairs, whereas humans have 23 pairs of 46 chromosomes. So at some point, we appear to have lost a chromosome pair, which is unusual because you'd expect that if you lost a chromosome pair, you would just die. <laughs> So this commenter put forth this this idea of a fusion of chromosomes that that sparked the branch that that chromosomes became fused and voila the human lineage uh was started which is a simplified version of pretty much what the consensus is. So there is there were a number of studies from the 90s into the 2000s that took a close look at human chromosomes and found that human chromosome number two is actually two chromosomes fused together. That at some point in our past and the evolution of our lineage, two of our primate chromosomes fused end to end. Smushed together. Smushed together. And they, they still have that structure. They still have two middles because it's two chromosomes fused end to end. That's cool. And that dropped us from... 20, 24 pairs to 23. But, uh, and I've seen this elsewhere as well, where people will, will wonder, was that the moment, right? The moment that the human lineage branched off. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and it would not have been. So that's that's a very simplified uh, perspective based on the the suggestion that that would irrevocably separate that population from the rest. But this kind of chromosome fusion is actually really common in in humans today. So one particular type of this fusion uh, that is called a Robertsonian translocation occurs in one in a thousand people. Huh. And you you can still have babies. Uh, you can still interact with other humans. You haven't. You're not a new species, right? You're 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 still everything that a human is. There are genetic side effects to it potentially, but it falls within that realm of human variation. Mm-hmm. So more likely, this is something that got caught up in the gradual development of the features that eventually became characteristic of our group that over an extended period of time, because speciation is very rarely just, you know, one thing happens and now you're a new species. Boop. This would have been gradually accumulating new features, separation of populations, and the fused chromosomes may or may not have been an important part of that. You know, maybe there was some effect of that that, that contributed to that difference. Or it could just be that they got carried along Mm-hmm. Back in episode four, we talked about the founder effect. Yeah. You know, it could be that that just ended up in being passed along with the other traits that were important in separating out our lineage from the other primates. Yeah, just just dumb luck that it that's the group that went on yes. to, to give so, rise. So chromosome fusion happened. It, it's super cool that, that we've been able to find that. Uh, but it would have been one part of this complex speciation. Now, I do want to encourage people to look more into this topic because it is very cool. But as I discovered while I was double-checking my knowledge on this, if you start searching this in Google, Google will give you a whole lot of intelligent design and anti-evolution discussions about this topic. And the reason that they do that, in part, is because this came up in the 2005 Dover Intelligent Design Trials. And so it, it got a lot of attention and it has yeah. become a, a favored punching bag of anti-science folk so if you want to read more about this i recommend an article by carl zimmer called mystery of the missing chromosome uh, carl is a phenomenal science writer has has written books about genetics this guy knows yeah. his stuff check out that article it's got tons of great links for more exploration it's got pictures it's it's really cool so a very cool subject, a very cool topic uh, that, that I was happy to see pop up in our, in our, our comments, in our Q&A. Very cool. Well, you know, that might be enough. <laughs> I think this is going to be a two-hour long episode, which is yeah. honestly not as long as I was wondering. I, I had no clue how long <laughs> this was going to go, honestly. I was no not sure. I meant uh, to say that in the beginning, that, that there was no time limit here. We're just going to answer all the questions. <laughs> I, if it ran we too did, long, we could maybe split in half. But now that we had no we had no timing. No, this is fine. <gasps> yeah, I think it's fine. Thanks, everybody. This, this was, was fantastic. We love doing this. Um, obviously, this was a Q&A specifically for this episode. But... Anytime you have comments or questions mm-hmm. or feedback or requests or anything you want to send to us, 
Twitter and Facebook and Gmail and the blog, and uh, you can you can comment on Podbean and all sorts of places. Reach out to us. We love hearing from you. Uh, this is a, a fun opportunity for us to respond. Mm-hmm. And like we said throughout this, you know, keep listening, keep sharing with your friends, uh, leave us reviews, interact with us online because that really helps uh, further the podcast. That's a really great thing to do. And have a happy new year. And a Merry Christmas. Happy, shut up, you. <laughs> Christmas is over. This five, this episode's not coming out till the new year. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> hope you all you, had a wonderful is. Christmas, everyone. <laughs> I hope you got. I hope you had a nice time. Whatever else you celebrated, I hope it was lovely. Bah, humbug. <laughs> have a great new year. We will see you in 2019. We have a lot of exciting things planned. Keep an eye out for more episodes. Keep an eye out for that merch we talked about. Yee. Keep an eye out for more. Ser- a lot of the people on here also commented that they liked, you know, spooky and they liked yeah. spotlight and things like that. That stuff will keep coming. I, j- I, I'm as always. I'm out of things to say. Yep. This we, has been a we, lot we of done fun. Talked out. We done did it. Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2019. Make the most of it. Bye for now. Thanks, everybody. Outro music. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.